What an intro. Real music. The Sounds of Gamble and Huff, Philadelphia International. I just love the horns and a sound of an orchestra. And I had to have a member of Philadelphia International on my show. We have the legendary Bobby Eli, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist. And he talks about the history of the Philadelphia International Sound, some of the musicians he's played with and artists he's been able to work with. We also talk about, uh, you know, his composition and how he works in the studio. This is just so exciting to get Grammy winner Bobby Eli with us. This is Sabrina Marie of Building Abundant Success, and I come at you with Bobby Eli right now. In most cases, a good producer is is necessary. He doesn't have to be a um, dictator. I mean, a good producer in a studio should bring out the best in an artist. Groups, acts, artists are sensitive, so unless they're asked to uh, be directed or whatever, it's always best to let them do their thing and then fine-tune the end result, you know, because, you know, if, if the groups weren't good, they wouldn't be signed in the first place. Because sometimes you just have to, like, for instance, you know, if I was producing Gladys Knight, who, who I love, who I always wanted to work with, I wouldn't say, uh, yo, Gladys, do it like this, do it like this. I, you know, come on. I wouldn't tell her to do it like this. She just has to be Gladys, and I could make a suggestion or two along the way, uh, you know, if need be, you know, to make it um, just that much better. The same with Eddie LaVert or or even when Teddy was alive or whatever. You just don't, Felipe, you know, you just let them do your thing and then, you know, do several takes and... uh what I like to do if I'm working with a good singer like that, if they're willing to do, you know, th- you know, several takes of a song, uh, maybe four or five, whatever, just listen back and take the best, best of each one if need be and make a composite. You know, I do that all the time. If need be, you know, take, take the best lines or phrases from each performance and make a master uh, performance out of it. And, you know, you can make magic that way. What's going on in your career in the late 60s? You mentioned that you were there at the beginning of the whole Philly International. What's going on in your life at that time? Well, uh, what's going on? My oh, Okay. Um, not, uh, Philly International, as a label, you know, started in 1971. I mean, before that, before that, uh, Gamble, you know, had Gamble Records, and then for a minute they had Neptune and North Bay and all that stuff. But uh, Philly International's label started in 71. At the same time, um, I was I was playing with the Three Degrees live uh, for a minute. Let's say the end of, the tail end of 1970 into the early part of 1971. I was playing uh, guitar and for a minute even doing the musical director work for Three Degrees. Um, and then uh, a friend of mine uh, at the time, uh, Gil Askey, who worked with Diana Ross for years as her conductor, asked me if I would like to go on the road with Diana Ross, right? <laughs> All right, so... I went out and bought me a brand new guitar and amplifier and stuff like that. And, uh, right around that time, I mean, Philly International was, was just starting up and I got to thinking, I said, no, 
I don't think I want to leave Philly, and I'm glad I stayed because that's when it all really started to, you know, to take off. So that's it. The guitar that I bought actually was the one that I used. Just Don't Want to Be Lonely came about, and at that time we had a relationship with Tom Bell, and we brought it up there originally for Little Anthony and the Imperials, but then he said, uh, he said, man, I'm getting ready to record Ronnie Dyson. I think it would be great for Ronnie Dyson. So uh, he wanted us to rewrite the first verse, which we did. And lo and behold, he recorded it on Ronnie Dyson. And, you know, it did okay. It, it was it charted, mid-chart. But when the main ingredient got a hold of it, it went up to, you know, up to number one. I, I didn't really like it at first when the main ingredient did it, because it was like one of those, oh, what did I do to my song moments with all that all that talk in the front with, you know, hey, man, where are you going with that suitcase and all that? I said, what the hell, you know? So anyway, <laughs> I, I, once once the check started to come in, I grew to like the song, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, right after that is when the sideshow idea, you know, I just kind of borrowed, I kind of borrowed the melody a little bit from Just Don't Want to Be Lonely and turned it around and twisted a couple notes here and there. And and then, you know, then, then the floodgates opened, so Vinny and I started really getting creative and Love Won't Let Me Wait and all that, and so we be, we became full-fledged songwriters by that time. And, uh, you know, the the bug hit, so here I am, still writing songs 100 years later, at least trying to. And, uh, you know, so it's just something that, something that, that comes... Naturally, like I said, according to the other parties involved, like now I'm writing with, you know, a, a very group of people, some old, some some old, some new. You know, I'm developing a uh, a young lady here who's uh, really got a lot of promise as a songwriter, so I'm writing with her. And hopefully when Len decides to come out of mothballs, I'll write with him again. <laughs> and... uh and uh, let's see. Oh man, so much. I mean, I'm doing so much stuff. Uh, this kid, Dennis, Dennis Youngblood Taylor, who's the kid I told you about from Boston, who's mm-hmm. 17 years old. He's he's promising, uh, promising artist, songwriter, musician. I mean, he's he's on the next. He's on my next list, you know. And um, so there you go. And here we are. Nope. A lot of people over the years, and I'm, I'm reading uh-huh. your roster from Patty LaBelle, and you've worked with Phyllis Hyman and Wilson Pickett. And uh-huh. I mean, who uh, stands out in your mind and some of the highlights that you've you've been through over the course of your career? Uh, what were your relationships like, and who was just uh, outstanding in your your opinion of the people that you've worked with? Mm, outstanding. Oh, boy. Outstanding. Who surprised you, and you know who who didn't? Mm. Well, you know, I guess for different reasons. Um, for different reasons, ah, um, uh, I worked with uh, a lady from down south named Jackie Moore. Mm-hmm. Jackie Moore is a uh, you know. More or less, a, you know, Southern soul artist initially, and we managed to get a big dance hit with the song called "This Time, Baby," right? And but she's she's she uh, 
is one of my all-time favorites. In fact, we're probably going to be working again pretty soon. And she, uh, let's see, um, Wilson Pickett was a challenge with his crazy self, you know, you know, with his, with his skits, skits out crazy self, but he was, he was challenging, um, as a producer, man, you know, you know, it all depends. You know, sometimes when, when I try to think of all these people that I worked with, but I'll tell you, you know, in all honesty, and I, and I hate to say this, but my artist, Dennis Taylor, is just as good, or if not better, than 95% of the artists that I've worked with over the years. Because he's the real deal, he's, he's, he's a real deal soul man who, who is, um, you know, you know, blue-eyed soul. I don't, he doesn't have blue eyes, but he's, you know, he, he's a white boy with. He's he's a genuine article. To, you know, he's the real deal, and everybody that's heard him will still tell you that. I mean, he's the, he's exciting. I mean, no, you know, he's seventeen. He, he's got real soul, and he's you know the whole package as far as the new people go. You know, um, I'm trying to think. Trying to think, Lord have mercy. So many of them, man. I mean, as a producer, it all, it all, it all depended on. You know, I did an album with uh, Lenny, and I wrote most of the songs for a group called Impact. Impact was, you know, Damon Harris. Um, Damon Harris was with the Temps. You know, he took Eddie's place, and after he, after he left the Temps, he got back with his original group, and then he renamed them Impact. And that was a, that was a great project to me, you know. Um, it was kind of like, you know, I would close my eyes and think that the Temptations were out in the studio recording because it was it was like that, you know. And unfortunately, Atlantic Records uh, didn't see, didn't have the same image. I mean, they they didn't spend dime trying to promote that sucker, you know. You know, what? that's that's the thing. I mean, you can go and re- and and record some of the best music. Um, but if the record company, if the politics of the record company is not with it, then you might as well just, you know, forget about it. I mean, I've had a lot of, a lot of product like that, you know, with Atlantic, with Columbia. You have all the, all the politics, man, you know, the stuff behind the scenes that cause things to go awry. It's got nothing to do with the music. It's got, it's just got to do with, with the crap, you know. Like, like for instance, back to the Jackie Moore song. This time, baby. Uh, at the time, 1979, uh, Columbia Records had had, you know, a division called Black Music Marketing, and which was just that, Black Music Marketing. And it was, I, I would say, it was a, you know, Columbia was kind of a, a separatist slash racist. It was, it was. Let's just say this. Okay, so they, you know, promoted, you know, the Black Music Division of Columbia Records. Fine. Now, this time, baby, when when I gave the company the acetate, you know, the finished master on the acetate, a guy named um, Vince. Uh, anyway, he was an Italian guy who was the, the head of the dance promotion at Columbia Records, uh, and he took it down. He took the record down to WBLS Radio, which is a black station. And the, the black music division got upset and said, "Man, 
she's a black artist. We should have taken it down there. Not you. I said, what the hell is the difference? A song is a song. Who cares? You know, and they got they got bent out of shape because a white guy, a white Italian guy, took a record by a black artist to WBLS, which is a black station, to get airplay. I mean, they were pissed off forever. That's that's stupid, man. You know, who who cares? Yeah, I mean, it was it was great. Who cares? You know, the, the the whole idea is to get airplay, no matter who takes it down there. You know, that could be, be an Aborigines midget from, you know, <laughs> anybody. You know, so anyway, so that was that. You know, I mean, you, you thank goodness they disbanded that. But uh, so that's the kind of thing sometimes you have to – labels, that's the thing, labels. People tend to label music and artists, you know. Music is music, man. It's either good or it's bad. And the only color of music is green. Not white, not black, but green. It's the money that it makes, you know. So, What incarnation of The Temptations did you work with? Uh, let's see. Did I work with in the studio a couple of times? Uh, I did, we did one album, and one album in 1977, the other one in 1981, so they had, they had a one-off on Atlantic, uh, and then, then they had, then when they were back in Motown in 81, I'm forgetting who was in the group, to be honest with you, I don't know, I think Glenn was in the group, um, it was, uh. Was Dennis back with him? Yeah, Dennis was there. It was before, before Ollie Woodson. It was, mm-hmm. it was Dennis, Glenn, uh, Melvin was still alive, of course. Uh, Otis. Yeah, Melvin, Glenn, Otis, Dennis. When you worked with them, what was Richard the difference? Street, Richard Street. Richard yeah. Street. What was the difference in the temptations when you were working with them and then when you first saw them in the 60s? Had they kept up pace with the current trend, or what was going on when you were working uh, with them? Uh, I mean, they were, they were, in my opinion, a shell of themselves. I mean, sometimes groups, when they try to get too current, they're, they're you know, against the grain. I mean, it wasn't really, I mean, in my opinion, that's those those two albums didn't really um didn't really typify the the temptations you know i you know i was you know I, i'm old enough to remember the temps in their original form and to have seen them many times and been around them many times and once again i was spoiled by the original temptations you know unfortunately i never got a chance to to you know, work with them that way, but I mean, there was still. I mean, by 1981, there were still temptations. You know, there was still, um, you know, they still had something. I mean, Dennis. The reason was why there. I was asking you that is because the uh, Philly Sound had many guy groups and you know, stylistics, the OGs oh, yeah. and whatnot that came afterward. Uh, what was it like when you saw uh, a, a blueprint, really, of guy groups? Because the Temptations weren't the first, and the original form of the successful Temptations 
uh, David Ruffin was not even the original lead singer. So what was right. it like for guy groups in the 70s coming through that transition of the 60s? What was going on? Because you had a whole heck of a lot of them that came through uh, Philly International. Now, the group called The Futures, um, the Futures who recorded with Philly International were, um, they wanted to be... Um, they wanted to, to fill the temptation shoes. In fact, the bass singer Harry did go to join the Temps before he passed. You know, but yeah, the, the futures were like the Philly International answer to the Temptations. Um, but you know, thinking about it now, back in a day, all the, most of the male, most of the the guys wanted to be like the Temps, and most of the girls wanted to be like the Supremes. You know, coming up. You know, um, what set apart the stylistics? We already know the OJs have their niche. Uh, they they were actually a, a five member band oh, in yeah. the season that 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 whittled down to three. But the stylistics, I mean, you had the uh, Shy Life. You had a whole bunch of other groups that either were with mm-hmm. Philly or others that had that five person, four person. Mm-hmm. You know what what stands out. Why were the stylistics so successful? Was it just songwriting? Was it the falsetto? What was it? It was. It was the. It was a combination. It was Tom, Tom Bell and Linda Creed were the key. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what happened was. Um, let, me, let me just think back a second. I mean, Tom. You know, Tom was always successful with falsetto groups. You know, with the with the Delphonics and all that. Now. When the stylistics first recorded, they recorded a song called "You're a Big Girl Now," right? And 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 with and and a subsequent album that never came out. I'll more about that later. Uh, "You're a Big Girl Now." "You're a Big Girl Now" originally was recorded for a little Philly company called Sebring, and and of course Avco uh, picked it up after the strength of it's, it's getting a lot of airplay. Um, now after. You're a big girl now. Um, Tom Bell, Avco Records, you know, offered uh, Tom Bell to record the stylistics based on his success with the Delphonics, who he was really not working with anymore by then, you know, because they were a falsetto group. However, the stylistics, other than Russell, stylistics, stylistics couldn't sing. They, they, wow. they were awful, awful. So... The only record that they appeared on singing background was You're a Big Girl Now. And, you know, Tom, Tom started, Tom started the phenomenon of, of using, uh, studio singers. You know, then, then I came along and Norman, we all, cause a lot of those groups were, they really sucked in the studio because the microphone don't lie, you know. So, um, with the exception of Arian, who sang his double lead on You Make Me Feel Brand New, I mean, it's all just Russell, you know, and studio guys, the same studio guys we use with Blue Magic, who also sucked, you know, in the studio, you know. And and Spell by Blue Magic is the only song that they, you know, the, origin, the group sang on, the actual Blue Magic, or they were actually called Overdose of Soul, that was the name, that's the name on the tape box. But, uh, yeah, so, 
with the stylistics, it just happened to be a stroke of luck. It was Tom Bell's very adept um, production, very adept, uh, you know, the co-writing with him and Linda. I mean, their marriage of lyrics and music was, was second to none. I mean, it was just so, so special. And, and then Russell's phrasing... Russell was like uh, kind of uh, it was kind of like how Dionne Warwick and Burt Bacharach were meant for each other. Dionne Warwick was the best interpreter of Burt Bacharach songs, and at the time, Russell was the best interpret- interpreter of Tom Bell Linda Creed songs. Was Tom would write? They you know they would. Tom was one of the kind of guys who always wanted to be strict to the melody. You couldn't really deviate and do a lot of ad-libs and stuff. It was it was kind of like follow the bouncing ball kind of stuff. You had to do it exactly so. But it paid off because those records were huge. They sold big numbers to middle America to the people that really buy the records, you know, the pop audience, you know, so that was a good thing. I'll take a big pop hit. In any day, you know, you know, a mass a mass appeal record, you know. So that's what happened, and you know, it happened. I mean, those songs. I mean, you make me feel brand new, man. I mean, that was like the ultimate, the ultimate love song at the time, 1974, and uh, that's what happened. You know, it was a marriage. It just it was a marriage of great songs you know, great melody coupled with a great artist who just happened to sing in a very light falsetto, you know, kind of like, you know, well, you know, Eddie Kendricks, Russell told me that Eddie Kendricks was always his idol, you know, Mm -hmm. so he tried to, you know, follow in the footsteps of Eddie Kendricks and stuff. So that's where that goes. This has been Building Abundant Success with Sabrina Marie. Copyright, February 25th. 2023. What an intro. Real music. The Sounds of Gamble and Huff, Philadelphia International. I just love the horns and a sound of an orchestra. And I had to have a member of Philadelphia International on my show. We have the legendary Bobby Eli, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist. And he talks about the history of the Philadelphia International Sound, some of the musicians he's played with and artists he's been able to work with. We also talk about, uh, you know, his composition and how he works in the studio. This is just so exciting to get Grammy winner Bobby Eli with us. This is Sabrina Marie of Building Abundant Success, and I come at you with Bobby Eli right now. In most cases, a good producer is is necessary. He doesn't have to be a um, dictator. I mean, a good producer in a studio should bring out the best in an artist. Oops, acts, artists are sensitive, so unless they're asked to uh, be directed or whatever, it's always best to let them do their thing and then fine-tune the end result, you know, because, you know, if, if the groups weren't good, they wouldn't be signed in the first place. Because sometimes you just have to, like for instance, you know, if I was producing Gladys Knight, who, who I love, who I always wanted to work with, I wouldn't say, hey, yo, Gladys, do it like this, do it like this. I, you know, come on. I wouldn't tell her to do it like this. She just has to be Gladys, and I could make a suggestion or two along the way 
uh, you know, if need be, you know, to make it um, just that much better. The same with Eddie Levert or or even when Teddy was alive or whatever. You just don't, Felipe, you know, you just let them do your thing and then, you know, do several takes. And uh, what I like to do if I'm working with a good singer like that, if they're willing to do, you know, you know, several takes of a song, uh, maybe four or five, whatever, just listen back and take the best best of each one if need be and make a composite. You know, I do that all the time. If need be, you know, take take the best lines or phrases from each performance and make a master uh, performance out of it. And, you know, you can make magic that way. What's going on in your career in the late 60s? You mentioned that you were there at the beginning of the whole Philly International. What's going on in your life at that time? Well, uh, what's going on? My oh, okay, um, not, uh, Philly International as a label, you know, started in 1971. I mean, before that, before that, uh, Gamble, you know, had Gamble Records, and then for a minute they had Neptune and North Bay and all that stuff. But uh, Philly International as a label started in 71. At the same time. Um, I was, I was playing with the three degrees live, uh, for a minute. Let's say the end of, the tail end of 1970 into the early part of 1971. I was playing, uh, guitar and for a minute even doing the musical director work for three degrees. Um, and then, uh, a friend of mine, uh, at the time, uh, Gil Askey, who worked with Diana Ross for years as her conductor, asked me if I would like to go on the road with Diana Ross, right? <laughs> All right, so I went out and bought me a brand new guitar and amplifier and stuff like that. And uh, right around that time, I mean, Philly International was, was just starting up, and I got to thinking, I said, no... I don't think I want to leave Philly, and I'm glad I stayed because that's when it all really started to, you know, to take off. So that's it. The guitar that I bought actually was the one that I used. Just I Want to Be Lonely came about, and at that time we had a relationship with Tom Bell, and we brought it up there originally for Little Anthony and the Imperials. But then he said, uh, he said, man, I'm getting ready to record Ronnie Dyson. I think it would be great for Ronnie Dyson. So uh, he wanted us to rewrite the first verse, which we did, and lo and behold, he recorded it on Ronnie Dyson, and you know it did okay. It, it was it charted mid chart, but when the main ingredient got a hold of it, it went up to you know up to number one. I, I didn't really like it at first when the main ingredient did it, because it was like one of those oh what did I do to my song moments with all that. All that talk in the front with, you know, hey man, where are you going with that suitcase and all that? I said, what the hell, you know? So anyway, <laughs> I, I, once, once the check started to come in, I grew to like the song, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, right after that is when the sideshow idea, you know, I just kind of borrowed, I kind of borrowed the melody a little bit from Just Don't Wanna Be Lonely and turned it around and twisted a couple notes here and there. And, and then, you know, then, then the floodgates opened. So Vinny and I started really getting creative and love on let me wait and all that. And so we, be, we became full fledged songwriters by that time. And, uh, you know, the, 
the bug hit. So here I am, still writing songs a hundred years later, at least trying to. And uh, you know, so it's just something that something that that comes naturally, like I said, according to the other parties involved. Like now, I'm writing with you know a, a varied group of people. Some old, some some old, some new. You know, I'm developing a uh, a young lady here who's uh, really got a lot of promise as a songwriter. So um, writing with her. And hopefully when Len decides to come out of mothballs, I'll write with him again. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, let's see. Oh man, so much. I mean, I'm doing so much stuff. I had this kid, Dennis, Dennis Youngblood Taylor, who's the kid I told you about from Boston, who's mm-hmm. 17 years old. He's, he's promising, uh, promising artist, songwriter, musician. I mean, he's, he's on the next, he's on my next list, you know. And um, so there you go. Here we are. So a lot of people over the years, and I'm, I'm reading uh-huh. your roster from Patty LaBelle, and you've worked with Phyllis Hyman and Wilson Pickett. And uh-huh. I mean, who uh, stands out in your mind and some of the highlights that you've you've been through over the course of your career? Uh, what were your relationships like, and who was just uh, outstanding in your your opinion of the people that you've worked with? Mm. Out. Standing. Oh boy! Who surprised you, and you know who who didn't? Mm. Well, you know, I guess for different reasons. Um, for different reasons. Ah, um, uh, I worked with uh, a lady from down south named Jackie Moore. Mm-hmm. Jackie Moore is a uh, you know more or less a you know southern soul artist initially and we managed to get a big dance hit with a song called This Time Baby right and but she's she's she uh is one of my all-time favorites in fact we're probably going to be working again pretty soon and she uh let's see um Wilson Pickett was a challenge with his crazy self you know you know, with his with his skits skits style crazy self, but he was he was challenging um, as a producer, man. You know, you know, it all depends. You know, sometimes when when I try to think of all these people that I worked with, but I'll tell you, you know, in all honesty, and I and I hate to say this, but my artist Dennis Taylor is just as good, or if not better than 95% of the artists that I've worked with over the years because he's the real deal. He's, he's, he's a real deal soul man who, who is, um, you know, you know, blue eyed soul. He doesn't have blue eyes, but he's, you know, he's a white boy with, he's, he's a genuine article. You know, he's the real deal. And everybody that's heard him will still tell you that. I mean, he's, he's, Exciting. I mean, no, you know, he's 17. He's got real soul, and he's, you know, the whole package as far as the new people go. You know, um, trying to think, trying to think. Lord have mercy. So many of them, man. I mean, as a producer, it all, it all, it all depended on. You know, I did an album with uh, 
Lenny and I wrote most of the songs for a group called Impact. Impact was, you know, Damon Harris, um, Damon Harris was with the Temps, you know, he took Eddie's place. And after he, after he left the Temps, he got back with his original group and then he renamed them Impact. And that was a, that was a great project to me, you know. Um, it was kind of like, you know, I would close my eyes and think that the Temptations were out in the studio recording because it was, it was like that, you know. And unfortunately, Atlantic Records, uh, didn't see, didn't have the same image. I mean, they, they didn't spend dime trying to promote that sucker, you know. You know, that's, that's the thing. I mean, you can go and, and, and record some of the best music. Um, but if the record company, if the politics of the record company is not with it, then you might as well just, you know, forget about it. I mean, I've had a lot of, a lot of product like that, you know, with Atlantic, with Columbia. You have all the, uh, the politics, man. You know, the stuff behind the scenes that caused things to go awry. It's got nothing to do with the music. It's got, it's just got to do with, with the crap, you know. Like, like for instance, back to the Jackie Moore song. This time, baby. Uh, at the time, 1979, uh, Columbia Records had had, you know, a division called Black Music Marketing, and which was just that, Black Music Marketing. And it was, I, I would say, it was a, you know, Columbia was kind of a a separatist slash racist. It was, it was. Let's just say this. Okay, so they, you know, promoted, you know, the Black Music Division of Columbia Records. Fine. Now, this time, baby, when when I gave the company the acetate, you know, the finished master on the acetate, a guy named um, Vince. Uh, anyway, he was an Italian guy who was the, the head of the dance promotion at Columbia Records, uh, and he took it down. He took the record down to WBLS Radio, which is a black station. And the, the black music division got upset and said, man, she's a black artist. We should have taken it down there, not you. And I said, what the hell is the difference? A song is a song. Who cares? You know, and they got they got bent out of shape because a white guy, a white Italian guy, took a record by a black artist to WBLS, which is a black station, to get airplay. I mean, they were pissed off forever. That's that's stupid, man. You know, who, who cares? Yeah, I mean it was it was great. Who cares? You know, the, the the whole idea is to get airplay, no matter who takes it down there. You know, that could be, be an Aborigines midget from you know <laughs> anybody. You know, so anyway, so that was that. You know, I mean, you thank goodness they disbanded that. But uh, so that's the kind of thing. Sometimes you have to labels. That's the thing. Labels. People tend to label music and artists. You know. Music is music, man. It's either good or it's bad. And the only color of music is green. Not white, not black, but green. It's the money that it makes, you know. So What incarnation of the Temptations did you work with? Uh, let's see. Did I work with in the studio a couple of times? Uh, I did, we did one album, and one album in 1977, the other one in 1981, so they had, they had a one-off on Atlantic, 
uh and then then they had then when they were back in Motown in 81 I'm forgetting who was in the group to be honest with you I don't know I think Glenn was in the group um it was uh was Dennis back with him Yeah Dennis was there it was before before Ollie Woodson it was, mm-hmm. it was Dennis Glenn uh Melvin was still alive of course um, Otis yeah, Melvin Glenn, Otis, Dennis. When you worked with them, what was Richard the difference? Street, Richard Street. Richard yeah. Street. What was the difference in the Temptations when you were working with them, and then when you first saw them in the '60s? Had they kept up pace with the current trend, or what was going on when you were working uh, with them? Uh, I mean, they were, they were. In my opinion, a shell of themselves. I mean, sometimes groups, when they try to get too current, they're, they're you know, against the grain. I mean, they, it wasn't really, I mean, in my opinion, that's, those, those two albums didn't really, um, didn't really typify the, the temptations. You know, I, you know, I was, you know, I'm old enough to remember the Temps in their original form and to have seen them many times and been around them many times. And once again, I was spoiled by the original Temptations. You know, unfortunately, I never got a chance to, to you know, work with them that way. But, I mean, there was still, I mean, by 1981, there were still Temptations. You know, there was still... um you know, they still had something. I mean, Dennis. The reason was why there. I was asking you that is because the uh, Philly Sound had many guy groups, and, you know, stylistics, the OGs, oh, yeah. and whatnot that came afterward. Uh, what was it like when you saw uh, a, a blueprint, really, of guy groups? Because the Temptations weren't the first, and the original form of the successful Temptations. Uh, David Ruffin was not even the original lead singer. So what was right. it like for guy groups in the 70s coming through that transition of the 60s? What was going on? Because you had a whole heck of a lot of them that came through uh, Philly International. Now, the group called The Futures, um, the Futures who recorded with Philly International were... Um, they wanted to be, um, they wanted to, to fill the temptation shoes. In fact, the bass singer, Harry, did go to join the Temps before he passed, you know. But yeah, the, the futures were like the Philly International answer to the temptations. Um, but you know, thinking about it now, back in a day, all, the, most of the male, most of the, the guys wanted to be like the Temps, and most of the girls wanted to be like the Supremes, you know, coming up, you know. Um, what set apart the stylistics? We already know the OJs had their niche. Uh, they they were actually a, a five-member band oh, in the yeah. 60s, and that, that, that whittled down to three. But the stylistics, I mean, you had the uh, Shy Life. You had a whole bunch of other groups that either were with mm-hmm. Philly or others that had that five-person, four-person, mm-hmm. you know, what what stands out? What, why were the stylistics so successful? Was it just songwriting? Was it the falsetto? What was it? It was, it was the... 
It was a combination. Was Tom Bell and Linda Creed were the key. Um, you know what happened was. Um, let, me, let me just think back a second. I mean, Tom. You know, Tom was always successful with falsetto groups. You know, with the with the Delphonics and all that. Now, when the Stylistics first recorded, they recorded a song called "You're a Big Girl Now," right? And 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 and. With, and, and a subsequent album that never came out. I'll more about that later. Uh, You're a Big Girl Now, You're a Big Girl Now originally was recorded for a little Philly company called Sebring. And, and of course, Avco uh, picked it up after the strength of it's, it's getting a lot of airplay. Um, now, after You're a Big Girl Now, um, Tom Bell, Avco Records, you know, offered uh, Tom Bell to record the stylistics based on his success with the Delphonics, who he was really not working with anymore by then, you know, because they were a falsetto group. However, the stylistics, other than Russell, stylistics, stylistics couldn't sing. They, they, wow. they were awful, awful. So the only record that they appeared on singing background was You're a Big Girl Now. And, you know, Tom, Tom started, Tom started the phenomenon of, of using, uh, studio singers. You know, then, then I came along and Norman, we all, cause a lot of those groups were, they really sucked in the studio because the microphone don't lie, you know. So, um, with the exception of Arian, who sang his double lead on You Make Me Feel Brand New, I mean, it's all just Russell, you know. And studio guys, the same studio guys we use with Blue Magic, who also sucked, you know, in the studio, you know. And and Spell by Blue Magic is the only song that they, you know, the original, the group sang on, the actual Blue Magic, or they were actually called Overdose of Soul. That was the name. That's the name on the tape box. But, uh, yeah, so with the stylistics, it just happened to be a stroke of luck. It was Tom Bell's very adept um production very adept uh you know the co-writing with him and Linda i mean their marriage of lyrics and music was was second to none i mean it was just so so special and and then russell's phrasing russell was like uh kind of uh, it was kind of like how Dion Warwick and Burt Bacharach were meant for each other Dion Warwick was the best interpreter of Burt Bacharach songs and at the time Russell was the best interpret interpreter of Tom Bell Linda Creed songs was Tom would write they you know they would Tom was one of the kind of guys who always wanted to be strict to the melody he couldn't really deviate and do a lot of ad-libs and stuff it was it was kind of like follow the bouncing ball kind of stuff you had to do it exactly so but it paid off because those records were huge. They sold big numbers to middle America to the people that really buy the records, you know, the pop audience, you know, so that was a good thing. I'll take a big pop hit in any day, you know, you know, a mass, a mass appeal record, you know. So that's what happened. And, you know, it happened. I mean, those songs, I mean, you make me feel brand new, man. I mean, that was like the ultimate 
the ultimate love song at the time, 1974. And, uh, that's what happened. You know, it was a marriage, it just, it was a marriage of great songs, you know, great melody coupled with a great artist who just happened to sing in a very light falsetto, you know, kind of like, you know, well, you know, Eddie Kendricks, Russell told me that Eddie Kendricks is, was always his idol, you know. Mm-hmm. So he tried to, you know, follow in the footsteps of Eddie Kendricks and stuff. So that's where that goes. This has been Building Abundant Success with Sabrina Marie. Copyright, February 25th, 2023.